Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very core basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. I should just note, if you notice that our quality is a little different today, this is our first post-corona episode, and we're recording live from the uh, the Lennox Home studio, so hopefully this works out well because this is going to be the new normal for the foreseeable future. My guest today is Karen Prangley. Karen is Senior Vice President, Private Wealth Management at Brown Brothers Harriman. She spent her entire career advising successful individuals and business owners on the preservation of wealth. In her current role, Karen provides family office-level services to each of her clients. Her particular expertise ranges from saving income and estate taxes on the sale of a business, to assisting clients with the achievement of their philanthropic goals, to preparing the next generation to inherit liquid wealth or a going concern family business, to coordinating the legal and tax structure of her clients' assets. Thanks for joining us, Karen. So the subject of our podcast today is technology legend Steve Jobs. For anyone who perhaps recently emerged from a doomsday bunker or something and needs an introduction, Jobs was an American business magnate, industrial designer, investor, and media proprietor. He was the chairman, chief executive officer, and co-founder of Apple Inc., the chairman and majority shareholder of Pixar, a member of the Walt Disney Company's board of directors following its acquisition of Pixar, and the founder, chairman, and CEO of NEXT. Jobs is widely recognized as a pioneer of the personal computer revolution of the 70s and 80s, along with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Uh, His rise to prominence has been covered pretty well in books, TV shows, movies, you name it. So we're really not going to rehash it here. However, when a man worth some $10.2 billion passes, there has to be something interesting going on with his estate. Plus, Jobs' family was fairly complexly blended. Uh, Jobs himself was adopted. His biological father was a Muslim, a fact that his biological mother's parents reportedly weren't really fans of. So uh, she was forced to give him up for adoption. And after locating his biological parents later in life, he also found out he had a biological sister he didn't know about. Additionally, Jobs famously had a child out of wedlock, Lisa, with his high school sweetheart, Chris Ann Brennan, that he denied responsibility for for years. Indeed, Chris Ann had to take him to court for child support and even after a paternity test proved he was the father. The award was $500 a month, even though Apple had recently gone public and Jobs was suddenly worth $200 million, so that one had to sting a bit. He later apologized for his behavior and mended his relationship with Lisa, encouraging her to legally change her name to Jobs. And finally, there's his wife, Lorene Powell Jobs, and their children, Reed, Aaron, and Eve. So that's a pretty complex web, particularly considering how Jobs' abandonment, quote-unquote, by his biological parents, supposedly left him very suspicious of dynastic wealth. Interestingly, Jobs' estate reportedly passed completely tax-free. Now, he'd been fighting the cancer that eventually took his life in October of 2011 for eight-some-odd years. 
So there was plenty of time to consider his own mortality and formulate a plan. But passing on that massive a sum with so little becoming public is really quite a feat. It's believed that much of what Jobs did here was accomplished through the use of living trusts. For instance, in March 20, 2009, two months after Jobs stepped away from Apple, Jobs and his wife transferred three pieces of real estate in California into two separate trusts. Further, SEC filings reveal that Jobs was also busy moving the rest of his material wealth, 5.5 million shares of Apple stock, and 138 million Disney shares out of his estate and into a trust as well. Now, the very nature of trusts means that we don't have a whole lot more information about what went where. It's known that Lorene inherited control of the trust themselves, instantly making her one of the wealthiest women in the world. And Lisa reportedly received several million, again, quotes, dollars, according to unnamed sources. But beyond that, the estate is a mystery and likely to remain so. So end of episode, right? Well, that would be a waste. So considering the massive impact that Jobs has had in making technology a part of basically every American's daily lives, this seems like a good opportunity to have a discussion about digital assets and estate planning. Now, when most people hear the term digital assets, they think of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and dismiss it out of hand because you know, they probably don't own any. But the concept of digital estate planning and our digital lives is far broader than cryptocurrency, though don't worry, we'll touch on that too. Karen, do you mind laying out some broad strokes of how planning for digital assets is important for just about everyone, regardless yeah. of whether you own crypto? Sure. Thanks, David. The, I think the surprising thing for most people is that digital assets aren't handled like non-digital assets, right? People don't think by and large about specific asset categories. How will my bank accounts be handled? How will my you know, real estate be handled? you know, traditional estate planning documents sort of govern all of those things. The wrinkle with digital assets is that really the terms and conditions of the digital asset provider control and more or less trump everything you say in your estate plan. So so let's stop for a minute and talk about what is a digital asset. Certainly you bring up, up cryptocurrency. That That's a digital asset that most people really don't have. Most everybody that's online and on a computer has a digital asset. Your, your digital assets are all of your electronic information, including your email accounts, any domain names you own, social media profiles, digital photos, really that, that bring value to your life. And in some instances, digital assets are sort of the key to unlocking another asset. For example, if your email account hosts all of your, your bank account statements. If, if you've never gotten really anything in paper, if something happens to you, you know, those you leave behind may not know that you have that bank account absent getting into your email account, right? So that's an example of where those emails, that digital information, that digital asset is the key to really finding real value after you pass away. In other instances, think about digital photos those in and of themselves have value. In, in, in many cases, it could be sentimental. If you're an investor in domain names, there'll be real financial value there in getting possession of the digital asset, which is the right to that domain name. So everybody's getting more digital assets. That's the issue. That's the thing to think about is every day people acquire more digital assets of value to themselves during their lives and after they pass away. And again, the, the problem and why these digital assets just can't go pursuant to your will or 
whoever is in charge of your estate when you pass away is that providers, right? Let's, let's think about the Googles, the Yahoo's, you know, the companies that provide digital assets sort of hosting for the public, they have terms and conditions that say, hey, if you die, your, your account dies with you. Those you leave behind can't get your password and can only get access to your account in, in a very limited way. So we have to be really deliberate when we think about our digital assets in the context of our estate plan. Yeah, absolutely. This is the uh, sort of the wrapper, the clickware that you know, before you uh, sign up for anything, you're just kind of, oh, read this, agree to our terms. Like, and you're like, whatever, sure. Yeah, and nobody well, reads that. Yeah, nobody reads that. But it's interesting what's actually in that stuff and what, what you actually are allowing the company to do. The, the provider effectively owns everything. Yeah. And look, I, we, we shouldn't make, these providers, the bad guy here. I mean, they're subject to some pretty stringent privacy laws, which benefit all of us, right? I I know when I send a personal Gmail account message that it's going to be private because these providers are subject to such strict rules regarding privacy. So the the issue is that they are very reluctant to unleash that and, and to let go of that privacy when one of their users passes away. I mean, I mean, think about a common example. If, you know, the email account involved is John Smith at yahoo.com and somebody presents an estate plan, you know, will for John Smith saying James Smith gets access to the account. Are they, or do they feel great about releasing the John Smith account? And, and unlocking the privacy that they're federally, you know, required to keep in that instance, you know, no, there's, there's a, there's a whole, you know, body of procedures that they have to go through that makes it very complicated. Yeah. And, you know, I know it's hard to, you know, think of, of these things as digital assets, but the, you know, your digital life is truly an asset, not just to you, but to also to these companies effectively. And a lot of times that's sort of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, couched in sort of sinister terms as, as they're kind of keeping an eye on you. But um, it's important for their business model for you to be on their platform. You are their asset. And, and in order to you know, protecting these privacies is what ensures their asset and ensures the sort of the trade of your information that, that allows these companies to function. Basically, anything that you sign up for free, that's how it's actually making money, right? Is that it's trading on your digital life, your digital assets. And that has value. Yeah. yeah. I mean, providers definitely have an incentive to keep their privacy airtight because that is what most people want. And without that, most people wouldn't use their products. So, so I mean, I think uh, different providers, since we're talking about, I guess, like social media really right now, is they've kind of come to this at, at different paces, right? I think every estate planner has heard kind of the, the horror stories of so-and-so dies, you know, a soldier dies at war and they can't get access to his Facebook account, which seems ghoulish when it's, his, you know, the wife or whatever. But it makes sense in, in theory as, you know, if you just give anyone access to the account, all of a sudden you have a, a dead person's Facebook account posting updates and, and it could be, that could be traumatic for the families. Yeah. And I know now I believe they've moved on to this sort of like account emeritus kind of status where someone can take control and, and they put like a special note on the account or something that the person's deceased. Yeah. So taking Facebook, for example, they've got a legacy manager feature. So you can sign up to name a person to control the fate of your Facebook account after you pass away. And the fate is really a couple of choices, not many. I mean, continue to post on behalf of the deceased person is not an option, as you would imagine, because that is traumatic. The options are to memorialize it and create kind of a memorial page. 
and there'll be very limited posting available. So you could probably get a message out about memorial and funeral arrangements. Or the other option is to take the the, the page, the client's user profile and Facebook down altogether. If you don't mind, Randy, like what are some of the other, is this, is this kind of the common way that a lot of these providers deal with it? This sort of uh, almost like separate beneficiary designation, I guess. No, um, it, it's really, it's sort of a fruit punch. So the only large providers that provide this sort of like digital executor feature where you can kind of name somebody to control the destiny of your account after you pass away really are Facebook and Google. Google has this inactive account manager feature where they say, you know, we're not going to verify if you're dead or alive. We're just going to notice if your account goes inactive and you don't log on, do anything with your account for a certain period of time. And you tell us how long that period is. And after that designated period, we're going to, you know, check in, perform kind of a rudimentary, hey, we're about to release the content to this person you designated. Let us know if you're still alive and you, you missed this somehow. And then they'll, they'll transfer the content in your Google account to that designated person. And you can get pretty specific. You can give your you know, photos to one person, your Gmail on Google to another person. That's the most sophisticated one of these sort of beneficiary designation or kind of transfer transfer on death was kind of, I think, the analogy you brought up, mechanisms. Other than that, we really just look to the terms of service. So do the terms of service say that following death, the executor can get control? And what kind of control can they get? And it, it, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I've seen everything from kind of local cable providers that provide email services to literally allow the executor to completely reset the password and the executor is good to go. They got the messages, they have the content they need, all the way to the larger providers like Apple, talking about Steve Jobs. So uh, Apple has this protection, Google for sure, Yahoo, that require a court order. Yeah, Apple's always been notoriously difficult about yeah, well, uh, again, those sorts of things. I wouldn't say difficult because think of that John Smith at, you know, Mac.com email address. So they need some protection in the legal system to know that the person is in fact deceased, death certificate can do that, that that account is truly of that deceased person and that they're not giving, you know, the account of another person to another executor. Again, major, major privacy violation in that. Yeah. And no, I, I keep so, thinking of, I yeah. forget the, uh, Embarrassing now, embarrassingly now, I forget the actual case, but I believe there was like a shooter or something who they were trying to, maybe it was the Boston Marathon bombers, who they were trying to, to like the federal government, law enforcement was trying to get their phone unlocked because they had the phone. And yep. the service was refusing. They would not <laughs> do it. Yeah. I mean, again, they really hold these yeah, privacy the, rules to be inviolate, right? Yeah. So, And that's just, I mean, if we're talking about you know, sort of your traditional estate planning client now, I mean, you talk at Google and Facebook. It's probably like your main accounts in terms of just your, your digital things that they need to worry about. But I mean, for a, young, you know, a younger person, you're looking at a, a wide gamut of potential social media accounts, dating sites, Instagram, YouTube, you know, all these things that all of a sudden, you know, the estate planner can't sit down and be like, here's a list of all the stuff you need to do, right? This is, there has to be a certain level of responsibility of, of the client, right? It's really the only one who can keep track of a lot of these things. Yeah. I mean, if 
if people, as they think about their estate plan, can get organized and make a list of all of the accounts that they that they're active on and 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 all of the providers that they've got accounts with, that's really the best thing to do is to get organized in context of your estate plan and let you know those that you leave behind and your legal representatives know what what they need to to access and marshal following your death or disability. You know, no different than creating a financial balance sheet for those that you leave behind. I mean, getting more organized saves people money in, in legal fees and administrative fees and administering their estate and makes for a better outcome. And, and it makes for essentially more value left behind for those that you care about and those you leave your estate plan to. You know, what, the way most people currently are going are gonna to have run into problems here is the issue of passwords. Um, yeah. Do you mind talking about sort of how that comes up and, and maybe what you know, we can do about it to help clients sort of keep that straight? Uh, well, I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no clear... That's the reaction I'm looking for whenever yeah. I ask a question. <laughs> there's no silver bullet solution. I wish there was. So, you know, the anti-hacking laws, anti-computer hacking laws were written a long time ago. And in a world where they knew that all this technology was going to change and they wanted to define the law broadly. So essentially what these federal hacking laws say is, Hey, if you're getting into a computer system without authorization, it's hacking. And that's a federal crime. So, right. So, so ergo, when your executor uses your username and password that you left behind on a asset list, like I was sort of alluding to earlier in getting organized surrounding your estate plan and logs on. And the terms of service say that only you, even if you die or become disabled, only you can log on, only you, you know, account user, that's technically hacking. It is technically getting into a computer system without authorization. Now, I'm not aware of anybody that's been prosecuted for doing so. However, you know, most executors and people I work with trying to just administer an estate, you know, wouldn't want to trip over a potential federal crime. So you got to be really careful if you have both the username and the password. You got to review the terms of service, which of course no one reads and are very long and verbose, to see if you can access the account with the username and the password. And if you can, you know, usually it's not so black and white, you know, go for it. If it's unclear, stop, contact the provider, say, hey, I'm your deceased, I'm I'm the deceased user's authorized you know, representative, whether that's the executor or personal representative or administrator, here's a death certificate. What else do you need? I'd like to get access to the account. Now, these days, if you're going to get access to email accounts and personal electronic communications, there's another body of law that says you have to have specific authorization to get those personal electronic communications like email like the messages on social media, you have to have specific consent to, to get that stuff. That consent can either be in your will or your trust or your power of attorney, depending on what kind of environment you're, you're looking at getting the access in. Um, or it can just be kind of in a standalone one pager that some lawyers are having their clients do now that this issue has become in the limelight. The but digital, you got to show. Digital yeah. healthcare proxy is an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, something, something like that, and, and that essentially you can show the provider, hey, I'm the deceased authorized representative, and here is the written evidence that shows 
that this person wanted me to have their protected electronic communications. So it's a gauntlet you have to navigate. And unfortunately, getting the password to the account doesn't prevent you from going in the gauntlet. In some cases, it can make it worse. Yeah, I think it's important to realize here that uh, technology by its very nature moves vastly more quickly than the law can possibly keep up with, even if the law was running smoother than it tends to run. So that's the reason what you're really doing here is just sort of, A, you're playing whack-a-mole, but B, you're just kind of trying to create the sort of the broadest possible, you know, most angles of attack of saying you can use this stuff effectively, right? Because there just is no overarching law where you can, you know, in one yeah. document, say everyone gets everything. You just kind of have to try to cover every base and you're kind of like, you know, throwing crap at the wall almost. Yeah. I mean, sure, if that's what you're comfortable with. A lot of people aren't comfortable with something so broad. And they may spend time with their lawyers creating a specific patchwork of who gets what. You know, there are plenty of people that are having extramarital affairs online. And would they want their spouse, who maybe named their representative, to have access to all their email messages? Some people's email accounts far predate their current relationship. You know, again, it, it's more. there's more thought that really has to go in the broad authorization. I mean, even something as simple as being an attorney. I'm an attorney. I got work product on my personal email. You know, yeah. Well, you shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, a lot of these things are you shouldn't, but they happen. Yeah, of course. Or if you're a physician, right, you may have protected medical information. So it's very interesting. But also, if you just think about it, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, tell me, like, write down all your passwords. Would, I was thinking about it myself because I'm like, I don't know that I would necessarily be able to come up with all of them. I mean, Hopefully, you know, in this day and age, hopefully we've moved past, uh, you know, everyone's password is, a, everyone has one password for every site. Right, or, and it's one, or two, B, three, four, or that's, five, or that's, yeah, password is, is actually password, or the right. birthday or something. So, I mean, you're encouraged now to have, oh, every password has to be different, has to have letters and numbers and a symbol. That's like, well, if I'm on 30 different sites, which is not even that crazy a number, and I have 30, you know, even if I'm using some, again, I have 10 maybe different passwords, it's like to sit there and come up with them and match them all. It's actually kind of a difficult endeavor. Yeah. You know, most people who have 30 plus accounts with highly complex passwords do use some form of password manager product. And some password manager products do have a succession feature where your sort of inventory of your digital assets can pass on to another. Again, there's no clear silver bullet. I, I don't have one that I think really screams out as, as, you know, the be all end all. But, you know, writing down all your passwords on a piece of paper is unsafe. Somebody could get that piece of paper. You could lose it. Someone could steal it. And it it's insufficient because you're required to change your password so often these days that you got to remember to find that list, destroy that list, redo that list. And, and then again, you know, where would your, if something happen to you, how would your, you know, if your fiduciaries, those who leave behind know where to find that list. So you know, password manager program might be stronger, an electronic list with some sort, of, some sort of encryption on it would be a lot safer for storing your usernames and passwords. Yeah, I mean- Generally, these products also, I, a lot of the, what you're saying here sounds a little scary, right? Once you start talking about encryption and, and these sorts of things, a lot of these products, and when you look into them, are much more user-friendly than we're making them sound, than, than they sound oh, on absolutely. the box. Absolutely. There is good encryption Within Adobe, you know, within just a PDF document that if you Google, you know, AES encryption, you'll be able to find out how to do it. It's very easy. Yeah. I think the big important thing to remember here is just 
how kind of slapdash everything is. If you can't find an answer for how something works or how something should be done, a lot of times it's probably because there is no answer yet and you just have to kind of try to make it up as you go along. And this is one of the sort of the most open and rapidly evolving areas of estate planning practice just because there aren't laws and that, you know, there's no, this is the universal rules of, of digital estate planning. You know, that's just not possible. Yeah. You know, there is a law out there that's passed in about 43 states to deal with digital assets, but it's really just a mechanism for how providers can collect information and how fiduciaries can get access if it's authorized and in many times consistent with the terms of service. So it's it's more of a means to rather than a and rather than a you know blanket authorization that sort of solves the problem with the sledgehammer. Yeah, and I think um, I think that sort of creative freedom in a way can make a lot of lawyers nervous. It's not really a what a lot of us got into the biz for. I'm not used to that. Absolutely. So, you know, speaking of creative freedom and, fe- and quickly evolving areas of the law, I think we do have to touch on cryptocurrency a little bit. You know, there was a recent story. Matthew Mellon is a semi-celebrity, I guess, a millionaire. I was involved, I believe, in the Republican uh, National Committee. And he very famously sort of died in 2018 with like huge cryptocurrency holdings. Uh, he, had a, he had a certain amount of Bitcoin. He had apparently about $500 million worth of something called the Ripple. And anytime you hear valuations of cryptocurrency, it's always like a little bit suspect because that's how much it's worth but, you know, on, on paper. But how, how easy it is to actually turn that back into real money is always a question. But right. effectively, he had these passwords and the way that the blockchain works, if you, can't, if you don't have the correct passwords, the, the, the cryptocurrency still exists, but if nobody can get to it, it just sits there forever. So he basically lost. He died without sharing any of his wallet passwords with anyone. Effectively, there's now 500 some million dollars of cryptocurrency that's just unreachable. Allegedly, yeah. That is probably the most dangerous digital asset problem, which is with cryptocurrency, if you don't leave your private keys... Remember, uh, how a, a cryptocurrency is custodied is through cryptography. It's a cryptographic pair of a private key and a public key. And that is really your, that is your cryptocurrency, is that cryptographic pair. Without it, it, it is no more. And there's no help desk to call. You know, cryptocurrency is a decentralized process, again, without that help desk that you can call. So it is essential if you own any cryptocurrency, to leave those you leave behind, or if you become disabled, those who will be managing your affairs. The, the cryptographic pair or a, a safe way to get the cryptographic pair. And how you do that varies greatly by how much cryptocurrency you have. For those that have substantial cryptocurrency along the lines of what people think Matthew Mellon may have had, I've seen anything from you know, a series of color codes with private keys stored in various garages of friends and family, almost like a treasure hunt. Yeah. All the way down to sometimes people just bite the bullet and they'll use an external custodian like uh, Coinbase. Coinbase securely stores the cryptographic pair for you and does have a succession feature for an authorized representative. People that have a lot of cryptocurrency often find that outside exchanges are probably more fees than they'd like to deal with, but succession is, is really solved. Most important, 
you know, you people just need those in charge of your estate just need to know you have it and what where to go for the cryptographic pair. You don't have to give them the cryptographic pair, but just give them a method to safely get it. Mm-hmm. Do you mind just giving us an, uh, just a quick overview? So, how is cryptocurrency even treated in, in in a will? Is it is it treated like cash money, or is it treated as a you know a chattel? Is it treated as an asset? Um, what was what, what's it looked at as? Yeah. Uh, well, the IRS has told us that cryptocurrency is property. It is not currency. So I kind of think about it maybe as sort of like a stock or a bond as an investment that goes up and down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has capital gains tax when you sell it or when you use it to buy something. So uh, if I bought cryptocurrency for a dollar and it appreciates to $2 and then I use that cryptocurrency to buy a Tesla, I have to declare a $1 gain as I'm buying that Tesla. It's a really interesting interaction, right? Because it's almost like you're bartering effectively with these items. Yeah. I mean, that that's essentially how it goes because it, it's not currency uh, per the IRS rules. Despite, despite the name. Exactly. Yeah, so the cryptocurrency world is really an interesting one. It, it makes me think uh, in my sort of limited experience with it, it it's very similar to the... Uh, dealing with the, the cannabis investment world, actually, in a weird way, in that it's rapidly becoming more and more legitimate. So you have some very legitimate parties involved now, but you also have the sort of remnant of the Wild West kind of beginnings of it, where like, I know, I don't believe it functions anymore, but I remember one of the you know, years ago, one of the, the main central cryptocurrency things was Mt. Gox, which was um, yeah. started life as a, as, a, as, a, as a forum for a Magic the Gathering, the card game, literally nothing to do with cryptocurrency for, for a kid's card game nominally. And then it became the largest sort of cryptocurrency central. So there's still like the remnants of that, even though things are, are becoming more and more legit. So it's, it's very important to realize you're going to have to maybe uh, interact with, with very varying parties when you're dealing with cryptocurrency. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're redeeming it for fiat currency or you know, for, for a bank account or transferring it from fiat to a bank account, you have to do all those same kind of screening procedures that anyone would do uh, that actually the banking system is required to do on their customers and their antenna are up with cryptocurrency transactions because they know that, you know, purposefully cryptocurrency is, uh, it's, it's anonymous. We don't know who has it. We don't know if, you know, terrorist has it or an ordinary citizen. And so there's not, a lot of clear ways to prove the legitimacy of the cryptocurrency, which can be an issue again when it's con- converted to fiat currency in a in a traditional U.S. bank account. So we're just about running out of time now, unfortunately. But you know, hopefully, we got across the point here that that no matter how few digital assets you think you have, you probably have significantly more in actuality. And though you know maybe you don't own cryptocurrency, there's certainly wildly varying levels of sort of how much digital exposure somebody has, everyone has it. Um, Karen, you know, I know this is a huge topic and it's, you know, not to put you on the spot, but in terms of, of the average client, if that even exists, what's the, you know, the one most important thing they should keep in mind or that advisors should, should sort of keep in mind when dealing with the average client in, in the world of sort of digital assets and digital estate planning? I think the most important thing people for people to know and advisors to do is have their clients, you know, close their eyes and imagine something happened to them. 
and imagine that nobody could get into anything online, that their online life was dead. What are the need to knows at that point? What would be the things that make you go, hmm, oh, hmm, no one can get into my digital photos. No one can get into my email account. Oh, but the email account is the only way I get my bank account statements. And, you know, my family might not know that I bank at X bank. It's really conduct the digital fire drill, have your aha moment and update your estate plan so that those that you trust to manage your estate have a way of getting into the online stuff, right? Not a perfect way. There's no perfect way for them to get into the online stuff. You got to just leave them breadcrumbs because there is no more paper trail, right? All of this stuff is digital now. And unfortunately, breaking into the digital is sometimes impossible. So that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank our guest, Karen Prangley, for being really great and discussing this very interesting and vast topic with us. Thank you. uh, (laughs) And I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.